Hi, and welcome to Femme's Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Asiet, and this podcast aims to support, educate, and empower women to achieve career success and financial freedom. In each episode, Femme's Finance talks with successful women leaders, founders, and investors to inspire you in your journey to financial freedom. Check out the show notes, links, and resources on our page, femmesfinance.life. Hello and welcome to the Femmes Finance Podcast. Today, I'm beyond excited to have an incredible guest with me today, someone who has been a personal inspiration for me for a long time, Camila Roland. Camila is currently pursuing her PhD in education at Cambridge University, where she's researching international inclusive education development. She's also teacher associate, research assistant, and supervisor for undergraduate students at Cambridge University. But that's just the tip of the iceberg because she has accomplished so much more in this life. Camila is the founder of Education for All Association in Astana, Kazakhstan, that promotes educational access and professional development for children with special needs and disabilities. Her work has earned her numerous recognition from the British Council, Chevron, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and Forbes, who named her to their 30 under 30 list. Her work in social and educational inclusion in the context of diversity has made her a well-known leader in Central Asia, inspiring many people along the way, including myself. So without further ado, let's jump into our conversation with amazing Camila Roland. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much, Asel, for such a kind introduction and for inviting me to be your guest. I feel very, very humbled and I'm really glad to be joining you here today. Amazing. So, Camila, before we start, can you please introduce yourself, your background, your core values and what inspires you? All right. Well, starting with my background, sort of, you know, where I come from, I was born in Kazakhstan in a small city named Jaskazgan, but my family moved quite a bit. And at different points of my life, I lived in southern, central and northern parts of Kazakhstan and eventually settled down in the capital of Astana, where I completed both my bachelor and master's degree. And I also started my career journey there. Currently, as you have already mentioned, I am based uh, in UK, in Cambridge, because I am a doctoral student at the University of Cambridge right now. So uh, it has been the first move for me, like a big move to another country. So that actually was something that I think shaped me a lot as a person and also affected my core values. When you ask about core values, I think this is such a big thing. I don't even know where to start. But if I have to improvise now, you know, just close my eyes and say, okay, what are the key things that are important for me? I would say my big value has always been justice. This is something that as a kid, I always struggling when I saw some injustice and I was always passionate about making judgments about right and wrong. Now, this is something that can be quite controversial. My family used to make jokes about me. They will call me uh, in Russian opposition, like opposition, because I was always challenging the behavior and the ideas of people around me, including my family. But I think this is something that has been a core value throughout my life. And this is something that shines through in my career choices as well. But I think even more than justice, of course, I care about kindness. Kindness is such a universal value to any culture, any religion. If you read any book for kids, you know, any fairy tale, 
The kindness is a core value for humanity. And this is something that I feel very deeply in myself. So I do consider myself a very empathetic person who is very in tune with my own feelings, but also I'm very attentive to feelings of others. So kindness and justice, I would say these are my core values. And this is something that has been in the core of a lot of my choices in life. So based on your background, you're focused on inclusive leadership and development. How do you see why is it so important and why should we all care about inclusive leadership? The word inclusion is the opposite of what? Of exclusion, discrimination, suppression, right? So inclusion is the core value of mine because I think it responds to the diversity that we face in society. If we look at most modern societies today, apart from you know, some secluded groups that live in sort of more isolation. But most of the world right now is moving towards globalization. In any context you can come, you know, I come to UK, I'm coming to Kazakhstan, I see a great diversity of people in terms of the ethnic composition, languages, religion, value, um, even appearance, skills, talents. And inclusive leadership is about employing the diversity of the society to its best so that everybody can thrive and everybody can meaningfully contribute to social development, but also live meaningful lives themselves to the best of their abilities in accordance to their needs, talents, skills. Because I moved to a much more diverse society here now in Cambridge, I started understanding the value of inclusion even much wider than I used to. Because in Kazakhstan, the main narrative when we speak about inclusion and inclusive education, which has been my area of research and, and work, usually people imply disability. So inclusion is about supporting people with disability and ensuring their equitable access to resources and opportunities. When I moved to Cambridge, I faced a much wider diversity of people in terms of languages, cultures, religions, worldviews. And I started understanding that to make peace with it, inclusion is important. Otherwise, you would be fighting everybody, showing that your culture is the best, your religion is the right one, your worldviews are the ones who should be most listened to on a political level. And that's just going to make you antagonize with everybody else. And this is not productive to your own well-being, but also to social development. So inclusion, I think, is something that brings peace to us as humans because it teaches us to connect with each other on a deeper, more meaningful level. And this is also something that brings peace to wider societies because it teaches us to celebrate the diversity. What is in your background that got you to build so many powerful projects and fight for inclusivity in Kazakhstan? And I'm very curious, where are you getting such a relentless energy? These are sort of two separate questions about my background that led me to uh, work in inclusive education and sort of the driving factors. If I speak about my background, I actually started in charity as a volunteer. So since I was 18 years old, I was volunteering for Red Crescent organization in Kazakhstan. And one of the key projects I was leading as a volunteer was provision of academic support courses to children from vulnerable families. Having led this project for four years, I figured that I was exposed to so many destinies of people, to so many human stories about educational gaps and lack of certain educational opportunities that it really touched me. And I felt like I want to make a difference. So I want to keep doing it. And then I completed my master's degree in this area. And in 2017, I decided to uh, capitalize on my previous experience and to establish a nonprofit organization of my own. And this is how 
my sort of activism started. When I speak about the driving force or sort of the motivation behind that, it's actually quite interesting. A lot of people, when we speak about inspiration, we think it's a positive word. There is a positive connotation behind the word inspiration or motivation. Now, I think for me, inspiration, motivation, or the driving factors were actually not as positive because for me, what driven me to work around inclusive education development is just a nasty realization of how much social injustice is out there and how much I disagree with it. And this feeling of rebellious disagreement was something that was moving me. It was something that has been feeding me a lot. Once I gave a talk about mental health and some student asked me about, you know, feeling negative and angry and aggressive and how the students should deal with their emotions. And my answer was that I understand it because I had these emotions for a long time in my life as well. But the way I employed these emotions is I directed them to something nice, good and productive. So by disagreeing with what I've seen, by feeling angry with social injustice, I got inspired to start a project of my own that would contribute to solving these social problems. Camila, what kind of challenges did you face during the initial stages of starting your own nonprofit organization? When you start your own NGO, there are obviously many things you have to worry about, starting from you know, uh, renting an office for your organization, setting up the team, training them, reaching out to the vulnerable population. All those things are important, but I felt like I can overcome everything apart from one thing that just my desire or my feelings cannot address it. And that was money. You know, No matter how inspired you are, if you don't have money, it's just incredibly difficult. So securing funding um, to start my nonprofit organization to develop it has been the main challenge. And uh, the way I overcame it was by mostly competitions, like grant competitions and, and um, reaching out for sponsors. There was actually one funny story about one of my first funders or sponsors that I was able to leverage. And that was a religious group. It was a church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This church, I, I think most people know them all over the world. They have missionaries all over the world. But I learned one day that there is a this religious group in base Nastana, where I was living at the moment. And a friend of mine told me that, uh, because she helped them with some translations once, and she mentioned to me that they are seeking for social projects to sponsor them. So what I did, uh, I just, you know, got dressed. I found this church on the map, apparently that they have like their own small church in Astana. And I just, you know, took a bus and I went there. And I entered um, the church and there was some prayer at the moment of service. I wasn't sure. I'm not really good um, with my religious education. So all I knew is that something's going on. So I was just quietly waiting until it finished. And then at the end, I approached uh, the missionaries there. And there were like a nice old couple from the States who were doing their service in Astana. And I told them, hey, I heard that you're looking for a charity project to support. Now I have an idea. And then I just started pretty much pitching my idea to them. Um, and well, obviously it wasn't that easy. They immediately would give me money, but they were interested. So I got them on the hook. And we've been able to organize several follow-up meetings with the members of my team. 
with some of the beneficiaries that we were already working with, because I used to work in charity organization, right? So I, I had a history. So I didn't start my NGO absolutely from scratch. It was more of the structural institutional thing, but the, the beneficiaries, so the people that we were working with, the families, the children were already there. So I made meeting with this, of the sponsors, with some of our beneficiaries, with some of our teammates, so that they can get to know us better to be able to build trust. So once this trust relationship was established, uh, this organization got interested in sponsoring us. And after some time, eventually, we got our first batch of funding. Now, once you have first batch of funding and you start showing at least some results, it, come, it kind of becomes easier. So I started going to different uh, competitions of um, British Council, Pricewaterhouse Coopers companies, and, and a lot of other competitions. And I started uh, winning different grants, uh, sponsors, funds to develop our project. So if I have to summarize what was the most helpful for me in overcoming this financial barrier and in securing funding for my NGO would actually be one thing, to be outspoken and vocal about your project, about your plans, and about the kind of help that you're seeking. So I was very vocal about the fact that oh, I'm starting this NGO and I'm seeking for funding. So I started telling people around myself. So at some point, everybody who knew me knew that I have this plan. It sort of sounds that it makes you very vulnerable. If you're telling everybody about your plan and you haven't done much about it yet, you don't want to make this impression of someone who is just a talker, but doesn't do much. Or you also may be very scared to fail because it seems like you gave a public promise to everybody to succeed. But I didn't see it this way because all of those are just mental barriers, really. Nothing more than that. So what I was doing, I was just telling all my friends about this crazy idea that I had. And at some point, people around me started sharing opportunities with me. And this is how I actually secured my first funding. So be brave, be vocal, be outspoken about your ideas, and you will find your support group. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your journey in the context of financing and funding. Now let's talk about Education for All nonprofit organization. Can you please tell us what does this project entail and what are some of the biggest notable achievements? Well, we started the Education for All Public Association in 2017. The main project that we have delivered was starting a inclusive education learning center, which provided academic sports and arts classes to children with special needs and disabilities in inclusive settings, meaning that we had classes with students with disabilities and special needs, as well as students with no identified special needs, like students that just go to regular schools, something in, in, in the terminology of special and inclusive education we call neurotypical children. And all these uh, kids were just studying together. And uh, we have created this model of education when we had a teacher and then we had a teaching assistant uh, or tutor. So we had this model when we had several teachers in one classroom in order to give individualized attention to every student. And every student was on their own individual learning plan. We used uh, the methods of creative pedagogy, problem-based learning in our classroom. Our main project was provision of academic support courses, and that would, academic, I mean, uh, we would teach math, Russian, Kazakh, English languages. But also for a well-rounded development of a child, 
we provided sports and arts classes. Now, this was one of the big projects, but as soon as we established it and it started working very well, we felt like we want to cover a wider spectrum of activities. So our second project has been working with the vulnerable youth. So youth with special needs and disabilities and by youth, I mean young adults and adolescents. So we had um, people from 13 year old to all the way to 30 year old. And these were people that uh, needed help in transitioning from education to employment. So we started a transition program allowing young people with disabilities and special needs to acquire independent living skills as well as employability skills. And we also help them with employment. Overall, we catered for around 60 beneficiaries, so children or adults with special needs and disabilities that were attending our educational center. So some of them were attending academic courses and others were attending the transition school. And we also had additional projects, which was inclusive theater. So it was a much more creative one, but this is something where I wasn't involved directly as much. I was helping with coordination, seeking for funders, but we had our executive director who was responsible for this particular direction. So we have quite several results and some of them are quantifiable and some of them are more about you know, the quality. But speaking about some of the quantifiable results, we had several cases when we were attended, our learning center was attended by children with disabilities who were not allowed to go to mainstream schools because of their low performance, academic performance. After attending our center, they have been able to pass the consultation with psychological, medical, pedagogical consultation. All right, this is, becomes very technical. I'm sorry for that. But in all, pretty much for most kids in Kazakhstan, in order to be able to go to mainstream school, if the kid has disability, the kids need to have a consultation with this uh, institution, PMPC, Psychological Medical Pedagogical Consultation, which provides a recommendation whether the child should attend a mainstream or special school or be homeschooled. The problem with this institution is that even though it's, it's just a consultation, it happens that most schools take the referral of PMPC as a rule. A big barrier for kids to go to school becomes passing PMPC consultation. And what our NGO was able to achieve is that some kids that used to fail the PMPC consultation by fail, I mean, they were not referred to go to mainstream school or to even special school. They were just referred to homeschooling. After attending our center, they were re-evaluated and they got a referral to go to mainstream regular school. So that shows that we've been able to raise the academic performance level and the development of, of children who before attending our center uh, were not qualified for a more competitive educational environment. And this is something that we've been incredibly proud of. And we know cases of two kids that have been able to successfully pass a PMPC consultation. When we speak about employment, We've been able to employ three individuals with um, special needs and disabilities to work in different settings. So, for example, two of them are now working in a cafe. So one of the projects we had in terms of the employability skills is teaching cooking skills, but also teaching uh, serving, you know, sort of mimicking a work in a restaurant. So our uh, young adults with disabilities would take cooking classes on the premises of our center. 
and then they would learn how to plate the food and how, then how to serve it. So we, we did the simulations and uh, we're incredibly proud that at the end of this learning journey, a couple of our graduates have been able to find job to work in cafes. So these are some of the um, case studies, successful case studies uh, of our beneficiaries. But also I think one of the great achievements of our center has been creating a community of people with special needs and disabilities, but also volunteers without any identified disabilities who are able to build meaningful connections and friendships. So after COVID-19, we, we struggled to maintain our financial model because um, we were at this point self-funded, but we struggled to maintain our financial model because um, as you know, the whole education was moved to remote classroom rather than face-to-face -face teaching. So it was very hard for us to keep delivering uh, services that would be attractive to people and people would pay for them. So as of last year, our NGO is closed. But the community that we have created, the hub, is still alive, very much alive. Even today, I saw in the chat, there were more than like 80 messages that I missed while I was just sleeping because of the time difference. So the community of the inclusive community that we've created of young adults with and without special needs that are constantly in touch with each other, meet up for coffees, go for walks together, still practice our theater, this community is still alive. And I think this is the greatest achievement that our organization has shown. What tips do you have for creating strong and sustainable projects that can last for a long time? I think this is something that I personally still struggle to fully comprehend. But based on my experience, I would probably give a couple of advice. The first advice is to have a very strong, reliable team who you know share same values uh, as you or add something meaningful to your team. It happened that I made some wrong choices about recruiting people into the team. And then we had to uh, pay for it in a way that some of our beneficiaries were dissatisfied with the service or in the face of a challenge like such as COVID-19, the people that were not on the same page in terms of values with us were the first to quit, which was very difficult at the time of crisis. When people start quitting, this is very alarming. So having a strong, reliable team with whom you build meaningful connections and make sure that your team is happy to be working with you, I think this is a very strong tip. Another advice would be to have a good board of directors, which can help with strategic vision of how the organization should move forward. So I would suggest to establish a strong board of directors because this is something that going to raise the leadership potential of your organization so much. And another tip would be to not rely on a single form of funding, especially if it is grant money. Again, a lot of nonprofit organizations globally, especially in developing countries, are so tied to grant money. And the problem with that is that every grant at some point expires, every grant funding eventually finishes and then the organizations have to apply again and again and again to keep being sustainable. And this is not a sustainable way of securing funding at all. I interviewed uh, several organizations that have failed just because of that, just because they just couldn't have money to sustain themselves. So do not rely on a single form of funding. 
make sure you have a strong board of directors and make sure the people in your team are on the same page with you in terms of their core values and their vision for how the organization should develop. I have a last question, and this is something that I've been really interested uh, since the day I've listened to your podcast with Nadik V. I actually read so many of your articles and I watched so many of your uh, podcast series as well with so many people, and I am a huge fan of you. So I am really I'm really interested to know how do you manage your energy and stay motivated to take so many tasks and projects and what habits or practices do you have in place to maintain your physical, mental well-being while also taking more responsibilities and many projects? Mm. Well, again, first of all, thank you so much for your kindness and 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 sharing, you know, your your genuine opinion about my work, it, it, it's really flattering and I I'm, I'm really don't take it for granted. So thank you for that. In terms of my energy level, I think there are two components to answering your question about how I maintain my, you know, sort of energy as well as passion. The first thing, the first component would be to stay true to yourself. And I'm going to expand upon that. And the second component would be to build meaningful relationships where you're where you are happy the relationships that bring you nothing but joy my first ingredient to success was staying true to yourself there have been so many situations in my life where i was questioned or where i was i felt like everybody and everything moves me to the direction that doesn't feel right to me and if i would be a conformist who sort of goes with the flow i would probably end up in a very different place than where I am right now. But because I always had this rebellious sort of attitude, remember I told my parents called me a position? Because I always had this and I always was very in tune with my own feelings and I was very rebellious if I didn't feel good about something, I think that was a key thing that moved me through so many challenges and questionable situations. I can even share a sort of a personal example, um, quite personal, and I don't think I shared it with um, you know anyone publicly before, but um, I would be happy to share it in your po- podcast because most of your podcast uh, listeners are, are women, right? So, and I celebrate women, and I think every woman is out there is my friend. So I'll be able to share it. Uh, before coming to Cambridge, I actually got engaged to a partner with whom I was um, together with for six years. So it it sounded like it's the next logical step, isn't it? You're in long-term relationship. What are you waiting for? Just go get married. Everything seems good. But I had this gut feeling that the thought of getting married doesn't make me happy. And instead of fighting myself, and that's what I think some people would do, you know, oh, maybe it's a problem in your head. You should fix yourself. And there is right now so many personal development courses for women, how to fix your own mindset and to fix how you think. Some of them probably have a good value. But for me personally, that didn't work. I didn't buy it because I felt like my feelings are not wrong. I didn't want to devaluate my feelings in this way. So I was following how I feel. And already when the date for wedding was set, when some people were informed, at some point I just sit down, I thought about it and I was like, no. This just doesn't seem right. Me getting married, even though it seems so logical, it just doesn't feel right. So I'm just going to stay true to myself and to stay in tune with my feelings. And I canceled it. 
of course that ruined my relationship with, with the family of this partner as well and uh, wasn't very nice for, for other people but it was such a good decision for myself and that's the thing that moved me in so many situations that was sort of a personal story right but there were a lot of professional stories that go you know in in the same way that where i am sort of pushed by circumstances by opportunities uh, you know job opportunities available out there instead of taking those you know instead of entering those open doors i was firstly listening to myself how do i feel and if i didn't feel right i didn't enter an open door and i was banging to the doors that were closed and this thing was something that allowed me to preserve so much of inner integrity and allow me to be my true self and that feels great i'm telling you everyone out there who who is challenged it feels great to be true to yourself it feels great to prioritize yourself it feels great to take care of yourself and not allowing anybody to choose a destiny for you so that's the first thing and the second thing that i mentioned is a relationship i bet most people already know about this um, it's a very famous ted talk on youtube um, that was presented by a, a researcher from Harvard University, the longest social science study ever done. And that was the study that was tracking the lives of people from, I think, Chicago um, in the US, so tracking the lives of a certain number of people, like hundreds of people, since they were kids until they got older, with the sole purpose of researching what is a thing that makes people happy? What is the thing eventually that matters? And despite the, the participants of the study having absolutely different backgrounds and different destinies, the one thing came clear in the results, and that was the quality of your relationship affect your happiness. Relationship doesn't only mean romantic relationship. It means everybody, right? Your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. But the quality of those relationship and interactions can define how do you feel day to day? Do you feel happy when you wake up? Do you feel excited? Or do you feel very down and sad and uninspired? When I, when I listened to this lecture, it was such an eye-opening thing to me. And I started re-evaluating all my relationship with everybody I had around me, which is a big test. And I started, when necessary, drawing boundaries, even with your family. If you need to, you can draw boundaries. And I started investing into those relationships that I felt make me feel good. And as of today, I can tell that there is nobody in my social circle that makes me unhappy. There is nobody in my social circle that I don't wish well, and I know that all of them wish me well as well. And that's a very good thing to have because I'm surprised when I hear some other people, you know, my friends or other people sharing some issues they have in a relationship because I understand that I'm blessed to not have those issues anymore because I made this choice my conscious choice of which people i would like to invest into and having the good quality relationship is something that allows me day to day to wake up feeling happy the past three years of my life have been the happiest years of my life in general because i made sure that the relationship i am in with everybody are flourishing so these two things staying true to myself and nourishing good quality relationship that bring me joy is something that allows me to feel always energized, happy, inspired, motivated, and good and healthy in emotional way. So the, to answer your question, these two things is something that makes me me and keeps me going every day. 
Camila, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for sharing your valuable experiences with us. I learned so much from you and I hope that our listeners gained a lot of knowledge from our experience and from our discussion. As we come to a close, I would like to ask if there is anything else you would like to add or any final thoughts you would like to share with our listeners. Yeah, well, thank you. It has been a great pleasure to talk to you. It's it's nice. It's a nice break in the middle of the day to just um, forget about my work for a bit and then just to talk about a nice person, about myself. Everybody likes to talk about themselves, right? So that felt nice. And thank you so much for this opportunity. People can reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram. Um, it's always, it's Camilla Roland everywhere. So I think if, if you Google it, you can find me on all social media. I'm very transparent about it. And I'll be very glad to connect with uh, your listeners. And I do not have anything else to add. The only thing I would like to finish with is telling huge thanks to you for your kindness, for reaching out to me, for your trust, for me to be your guest. Um, as I said, I don't take anything for granted. I'm incredibly humbled and very grateful and wish you nothing but success in your journey, in your podcast and in every endeavor that you start. Thank you so much for listening to the Femis Finance Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. And as always, if you enjoyed our podcast episode, please take a screenshot and post in your stories and tag me. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review the podcast and tell me your key takeaways. 